I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There has to be some reporting in every review. I mean, first of all, you have to play fair with your reader. Here's what I think a movie review should do. The first thing it should do, it should give some notion to the reader of what the movie is about and what it is like. If you play fair with your reader, you can give a movie a bad review and they'll still be able to read that review and know that they would like to go see that movie. You shouldn't just, you know, blast it in such a way that the reader would think no reasonable person would ever want to go to this film. You have to give the movie its day in court, too. There has to be something in there that conveys what the experience is like. Then, secondly, there should be a first-person tone. Now, one thing that people forget is that of the average readers of a newspaper, probably less than 1% or 2% will ever go to see any of the movies that you review. And this could go on with books, concerts, theater, and so forth. So the second thing you have to do is make it entertaining to read for somebody who is only going to read it. You know, like every Sunday I read all the book review sections, but I don't read all the books. I want to know a little bit about what's going on so that the piece has to be entertaining. Anybody who has 50 cents to buy the paper Uh, should be able to open up to the movie review, uh, read a thousand words, and enjoy themselves, whether or not they're going to go to the movie. Welcome to The Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. Be a part of the conversation as industry insiders, genre lovers, and cinephiles dare to peek beyond the curtains of imagination and dive into the art of cinema. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. Now here's your host, Armand Haddad. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming, Kyle, Brad. I can't believe we're here in the same room. We're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about The Film Critic, Tarantino's final film, our speculations, what we think that's going to be all about. But to give that context, we're going to be mostly talking about the history of film critique, film critics, the whole art form in general, and films along the way. But before we get started, Kyle, thank you so much for coming back. You're welcome. Thank you for having me again. Yes, the resident film journal from Chirp Radio. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that you're here. And we have a newcomer. So, Brad, the author, thank you so much for coming. How do you feel? I feel great. Thank you for having me on. Yes. It's going to be a great discussion that we're going to have today. So, to get started, to get the ball rolling, let's talk about film critics that we grew up with. So, uh, Brad, since you're the new guy here, I'm going to have you start like, How did you encounter your first film critic? Was this as a child, as an adult? Well, it's going to be a pretty basic answer, and I think it's going to have to just be Siskel and Ebert, just from the television commercials and just seeing them included in a lot of different elements within pop culture in the 90s for me. I moved around a lot, and I was sometimes in areas where it was very rural and we didn't have a lot of access to you know, various types. I, I didn't necessarily have access to a lot of film critics. So whatever mm-hmm. I would see on the television that would come through our, uh, the base growing up in a military family, mm-hmm. that's 
that was my introduction. That's how I came across this new summer blockbuster. Here's what Siskel and Ebert gave it. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I think we might have all the same story, but Kyle, how did you first discover film critics? Uh, well, Siskel and Ebert was a big one. They were on TV, but as far as the one that really, that I followed, it, my sister got me a Rolling Stone subscription as a teen and uh, I really fell in love with the reviews of Peter Travers. And uh, like I literally, any issue that I received um, in the mail, I basically would just go right to the film section. I didn't care who was on the cover. Um, it could have been Eminem. It could have been Britney Spears or whatever. But I just went right to the film reviews because he had such a great, uh, you know, it, it didn't feel like I was reading uh, a, a very like technical by the book sort of review it, it his voice is what really kind of drew me in he had sort of like this um badass rebel attitude and then i saw a picture of him and i'm like he looks like a soccer dad <laughs> but uh you know no offense to him or anything but i was just like i can't believe that that's what he looks like but um it was peter travers for me so he looks like ted lasso essentially K kind of yeah okay. Just, just an everyday guy, or like um, Geraldo Rivera, or something. He had like, you know, he has this giant mustache. <laughs> I don't know if he still has it, but I just remember one of the first pictures I saw of him. I was like, he—that is not who I expected. He looked much older than, um, than somebody who I who would write those reviews. I thought, right. So, like for me, it was you know Siskel and Ebert, Roger Ebert, and now Roger Ebert was primarily with the Chicago Sun Times, uh, PBS, WTTW. So, what was, who was he uh, tied to? What publication was it? Peter Travers. Yes, Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. Oh, that's or I don't know if he's. Big. I don't know what his uh, startup was, but that he was the big one for a while. I don't think he writes reviews for them anymore. But um, he, for the longest time, he had a major influence on. Um, the movies that I went to go see. Mm. Um, but he was also the, the sole reviewer at Rolling Stone for oh, a wow. time. Very. Wow. That's, that's a feat. Yeah. So I think like we all have like this humble beginning with like Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, their Chicago boys. We're in Chicago right now. Mm -hmm. Like we feel their legacy, like still today. Like when you just go in the film scene, like, I mean, there's like a, what a museum for Roger Ebert or, is there? I, think, I know there. Oh, I mean, at least there's a film school for yeah. Roger Ebert. So, and he still has. Uh, there's a, still a website that um, various reviewers still, I guess, blog on or or something. But yes. um, and then there's the um, the Siskel Movie Theater. Yes. Uh, in downtown right. Chicago too. That's right. Um, that Brad has some association oh. with. He also. Um, does a couple of things there, right? Go on. Yeah, I'm the uh, co-chair for the uh, Gene Siskel Film Center's associate board, so it's mm -hmm. a junior board, and we we provide support in the form of entertain of events and programming designed to connect the film center with a more millennial audience. Okay, very. I mean, it makes sense because like when they were mostly on TV, it was like the '90s, and then uh, Siskel unfortunately died in ebert's carried on the torch until like the 2000s so like we grew up with those men we grew up like seeing them are they gonna give it a thumbs up how many stars is it gonna get two thumbs up if you didn't see that on a movie poster 
or on an advertisement for a film, you basically avoided that film because unless you had their, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Unless you had their thumb up approval, it, you might as well just not waste your time seeing that movie. Right. I remember, I don't know which reviews it was, but I remember it was like one thumb up, one thumb down. And I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) Very, a mixed reaction there from those critics. Yes. Like those men, like, Essentially, like growing up, I didn't, I mean, we all didn't know how to judge movies or like to really critique them in a way. So like we gravitated towards voices that we trusted, authoritative voices and Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel were those voices when we were young. And I don't know about you, but like you too, but like I grew up as a big Star Wars fan, still Mm -hmm. am. And my VHS box set, this was before the special editions came out. Had Darth Vader on it. <laughs> Brad is is uh, jumping in his seat right now. But like Leonard Maltin introduced those movies. Like he was doing an interview with George Lucas. And as a kid, like, you know, I was like around like five watching these. And I was like, I don't know who this man is, but like he is presenting these films as like something more than just a movie. Like these are like a legacy event or, or something. So mm-hmm. it's like we have these figures, Gene Siskel. Leonard Maltin um, presenting films as like a higher art form. And like that really impressed or had an impression on me when I was a kid. So Brad, you were going to say something. Yeah. That, that set came out in 95 and I, I, I was enamored by that set. And yeah, I think that's probably my first introduction to a film critic. I can't believe I, I even forgot about that, uh, but it was, it, it was just wonderful. And yeah, the little short intro mm-hmm. interviews right before the film and they were just fantastic. Yeah. I remember him on Entertainment Tonight, too. I think he was their movie critic during the John Tesh and Mary Hart days. Um, but I remember seeing him in Gremlins 2, the sequel of Gremlins. He was. Where it was like he this was. little film segment where he was reviewing yes. Gremlins. the movie Gremlins. Yeah. And then they sh- showed up and like pulled him, like strangled him with uh, a, f- a film strip or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a he was very much kind of in that pop culture realm of this is what a, a film critic is. And. You know, I would go to like any sort of uh, film or like a movie oriented store like Suncoast uh, video at the shopping mall. And a lot of his books, you know, Leonard Maltin's, uh, I don't know what the titles were, but it would be like his little capsule reviews of all the films that he's ever seen. And um, they had like a little star rating or whatever. Um, But, you know, so I would see his name on bookshelves, too, of movies that either he thought were the greatest or the worst uh but he was also somebody who had a big pull um in film criticism when i was growing up right yeah it's just like it's incredible when we look back and we're like oh these figures have been with us all along yeah like it's it's just very interesting so we talked a lot about the people that you know we were introduced to to the whole film genre like like these uh shepherds these sherpas leading us into the cinematic world but like let's go into the whole art form of film critique so i have a design background like we're all, we're all creatives in our own way so we understand the form and how important critique is but for those listening that aren't familiar let's get into what film critique is all about so who would like to start first uh kyle brad i know that um as far as film criticism it's I guess considered one of the the newer uh, 
well, film is considered like the newer art compared to, you know, paintings or, right. or music. And so when film originally came out as, you know, silent film, uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of theories or the terminology wasn't really something that um, had been built up yet. Right. So a lot of people, and back then, you know, people looked at films as this isn't really art, it's entertainment. A spectacle. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not really meant to be analyzed or or to be really th thought through. Um, so I don't know who some of the earlier critics were, but I just know that it, it's still considered like one of the newer arts. And, and so it's still a, a developing, uh, the, the theory of it, of, of film criticism is still always kind of constantly developing. Um, mm -hmm. but it, you know, we're at a point now where a lot of terminology and, and, and theories and, and how we look, review films, it's very kind of in our DNA, but, um, earlier on, there wasn't really a whole lot of, um, of discussion about films as an art form because they didn't see it as art. Right. It was only until like the 1960s, seventies when like film became an art form, mm. like where it's like, okay, it's not just the spectacle, but it's like, Oh, this is, it's telling me something. And also the visuals have become more complex. Mm. And like, so it's like the storytelling aspect while also having these beautiful cinematic cinematography uh, attached with it uh, with film critique. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that when film became more artistic, like in the sixties and seventies is when we have also the rise of these very influential um, film critics. Ebert started in the mid to late sixties. Then we have Pauline Kael, which we haven't talked about yet. Mm -hmm. She also was a rising star around that time. So let's get into Pauline Kael, and that would be a great segue also later on where we'll talk about Tarantino's uh, The Film Critic because originally when that was announced, everyone was like, oh, this is about Pauline Kael. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where they got that from, but people like latched onto that theory until he was like, it's not about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think initially they said it was going to be, it's going to star a female lead and it was going to take place in the late 70s when that was kind of her era. But right. um, I think since then he's, like you said, he's walked back that claim it's and said it's, it's about a critic but not a very well-known critic and he even he might have even said he mm -hmm. to suggest it might be an actual male critic i don't know um but anyhow yeah maybe uh, it's a they yeah maybe it's a they <laughs> uh so pauline kale kind of ushered in the i guess the new american uh cinema of of like the uh, Peter Bogdanovich's and the George Lucas's and the Scorsese's um, right around the time of the release of Bonnie and Clyde. Mm, yeah, okay. When a lot of uh, critics, I think, were reviewing that film as um, as kind of like this combination of comedy and, and violence and they weren't taking it very seriously. But mm. she had a review in, it might have been The New Yorker. I know that she, first off, she got involved with film criticism based solely on somebody overheard her arguing about a movie with somebody at a diner, I think. Really? And I forget the guy, he was, um, he, he was some publisher or he, he owned some sort of, um, newspaper. And so he had her review, uh, Limelight, the Charlie Chaplin film and she reviewed her title of that review was um slime light 
And I've not read it, but I, that would suggest she had a very um, like visceral response to to that <laughs> yeah. film, and and that's what really kind of made her uh, a household name. Is because by that point, film reviews um, had kind of started, um, you know, uh, forming uh, in the forties and fifties, and that's right around the time that she got started, but. Mm -hmm. You know, she, here, she was this college dropout who I think majored in um, English and uh, had no background in film, mm. did not really know the terminology for movie making or um, or anything of that nature. She just reviewed based on her her like her feeling towards the movie. Right. And uh, and that really helped develop her voice. I think she did kind of want to um, strike down any sense of it being like a, a college term paper with all this jargon that didn't make any sense. She just really wanted to write from her heart and from her gut. And so a lot of times, you know, her, her reviews were kind of, you know, for some films, very bitchy, you know, she had like one liners here and there, uh, discussing a film. And for a lot of filmmakers, it, it offended them. It sometimes offended her readers. Um, and it offended her, um, her, colleagues as well you know how can you review a film like that how can you say that kind of sort of thing because i think she right. also incorporated a lot of like swearing and curse words in her uh, oh, reviews wow. which was kind of seen as um off color back then and mm -hmm. and inappropriate mm -hmm. and of course now you see that um almost in every review of any modern critic um but she kind of ushered in this uh the the new wave of american cinema in the late 60s and 70s by uh, heralding Bonnie and Clyde as, you know, this is the, this is the movie of a generation. Uh, this is a film that should be, you know, seen in a better light. And I, supposedly I think maybe that review kind of helped reconsider Bonnie and Clyde for the Oscars, um, later that year. And, uh, but it was kind of her word that she was able to, you know, support the likes of Robert Altman and, like I said, Peter Bogdanovich and um, the guy who did Last Tango in Paris. I'm I'm blanking. Bartolucci, Bernardo. Who Sounds was, right. Yeah, the guy who the Last Tango in Paris. Yes. Um, so there was a lot of films that were kind of initially reviewed negatively, but she kind of came back and said, "Oh no, no, these are." These are better films. These are worth your time. She spoke from the heart. Yeah. And she made film critique more approachable. Kind of similar to like Roger Ebert too, where he was more, I guess, conversational, like more like it's not like there's a difference between like those prominent um, film critiques or film critics uh, compared to the people that are like stuffy, pretentious. And it's like, it's more approachable that way. If you talk about your feelings, how you felt about it, because like, she came from, as you said, an English background. So yeah. she's reviewing books. She's analyzing books. She's like looking at, you know, storytelling. So when you do that and then you transpose that to cinema, that language still applies. So like, yeah. She came from like a more subjective uh, perspective rather than objective. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she felt that a film wasn't worth her time if it didn't make her feel something. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great films out there that she wrote negatively about, like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and I think that was because that's kind of a very, um, a, a very cold type. I mean, it's very visually stimulating and everything. Um, 
but I could kind of maybe understand where she, her approach came from and that it's a kind of very cold, uh, clean cut film that I don't know, doesn't really, it, it she wasn't into the ballet in space my, it, or the, the, the chimps throwing bones in the mm-hmm. air. Maybe that's what it was too. Yeah. Um, so the, it, she was very controversial, but, um, she definitely, there wasn't a film critic like her before, but there are several, uh, imitators, uh, since her time now. It makes me wonder what any response to her more personalized form of writing is, how much of that was really rooted in the sexism. There were not very many, uh, I mean, there were a few female critics out there, um, but they, they did not have really a seat at the table, uh, until Pauline came around. I don't think she broke the mold. Yeah. Cause I know that for the longest time, she wanted the lead film critic, uh, position at the New Yorker. Uh, but she didn't get that until I think like 1980 or something. But so mm-hmm. she would split her time, like she would work six months and then she would split off with, I think another female critic, um, whose name I can't, I think it's like Penelope Spilliot, Spilliot or something. But obviously, I mean, Pauline's, Pauline was the big catch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I could, I could totally see that sexism angle because like it's a product of the time. It's like, I want to be like the lead uh, in this company. And they're like, sorry, toots. <laughs> that goes to a man. Yeah. It's a man. You got to have broad shoulders to carry this lead. <laughs> so it makes sense in the eighties where you have uh, that cultural shift more apparent that she would rise uh, to be the lead finally. And it was after that wave of seventies um, feminism too, that yeah. kind of came. So I, I think people kind of looked at her as uh a pioneer uh oh, yeah. in in that sense well i don't think it's necessarily a product of its time i think there's i think the sexism is still rampant throughout the film culture not only just in criticism but we see a lot of that inherent sexism built into uh the system in terms of not only just production but also in terms of uh, how we see uh general fan or social media responses to uh, particular reviews or criticisms it, there, there's an inherent caked in thing that's still systemic in that mm-hmm. i think my pointing out with pauline kale was that how much of that personalization element of that time was just dismissed primarily because she was a woman i could totally see it and uh and she had a very but her the language that she used too was very frank um not very ladylike and maybe that was also part of the the criticism as well is that you know you're oh, that pauline she's a bitch <laughs> <laughs> how dare she use words like that <laughs> to describe something well that's what also made her a controversial character as mm. well because like if she was essentially the nice girl the the girl next door like sweet I don't think she would have caused waves. I don't think she would have opened the doorway to many other female uh, critics uh, to follow in her path. Like, I totally agree with you because like, unfortunately let's, let's address the elephant in a room. Um, We're living in a man's world, whether we like it or not. So like women especially have to work extra hard to get anywhere. It's an uphill battle no matter what. Cause like, I'm not saying like men have it easy, but like it's let's just be honest. It's harder for a woman to break into, especially in Hollywood, uh, especially in the film industry where it's male dominated. Like I can name 10 off the back of my hand, film directors, cinematographers. How many can you name that are women? You know, it's significantly less. But like 
going back to film critique, um, Pauline Kale is a controversial character. And especially with that Bonnie and Clyde review, uh, that caused waves. And that was like the beginning of her controversy that she would, I mean, she has these hot takes, sometimes the hottest of takes with Woody Allen, but like she has these hot takes. And honestly, I think that helped her in the end. Uh, The, I guess the owner of the New Yorker, uh, William Sean, he had, I guess he knew um, Terrence Malick really well. He he knew Terrence Malick like a son. Like that's what he considered Terrence Malick. And wow. she wanted to write this negative review about his film, Badlands. And uh, William Sean was like, please don't write this negative review. I, I can't have it in the New Yorker. I mean, uh, Terrence is like a son to me, please. And she went, her response was, tough shit, Bill. Well, good for her. Yeah. Good and she her. wrote that review. Uh, you know, it didn't hurt. Terrence is, uh, I mean, that Badlands is kind of another, it's another film that she didn't really like, but, you know, is kind of seen as a great film now. Yeah. So it didn't really hurt Terrence's reputation, but, um, you know, she was kind of stubborn in, in the way that she wrote reviews. And a lot of her reviews too were never edited by anybody else. She had so many arguments with um, editors uh, wow. because she, she felt like every word that she had in her reviews was important mm-hmm. so there are a lot of lengthy reviews that um a lot of film critics were not allowed that kind of space at that time mm-hmm. i don't even know if they're still allowed that but for pauline there you know she was very adamant that you know her words meant something good for her because like i feel like it makes sense that tarantino potentially could have had her as the lead character for the film critic because like she perfectly fits into the mold of this strong woman archetype that he explores in many of his movies. Like we did Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. uh, same thing with the bride in kill bill, kill bill. Um, we have in glorious bastards, uh, like all these movies that he has done. The common thread is there's a strong woman character. Yeah. So it makes sense that people would have been like, oh, it's probably Pauline Kale. If it's yeah, set in the I, 70s, a strong female, female lead. Um, and, you know, uh, she had re- Pauline had retired by the time that Tarantino made his first film. Um, but Tarantino has mentioned that her reviews, when he was growing up reading her reviews, her voice was just as important to him as any of the filmmakers that he um, aspired to be like. So um, he always had very nice things to say about her. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's, you know, somewhat based on her. He's already, you know, said that, no, it's not about her. But a film critic in the late 70s, uh, supposedly female lead, it it kind of makes you wonder. I have a feeling it is. He's a very particular guy when it comes to like his scripts and his movies and his characters. So like it's probably most likely based on her, yeah. But he's like, uh, no, it's not <laughs> actually her. Like he just he just comes across as a very by that maybe guy. he means it's not a biopic. And he has that trend of like doing uh, alternate reality stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Glorious Bastards. So yeah. it makes sense that he would round it out with the film critic. Exactly. We'll see. Maybe it's him. It could be him. Oh my God. Makes sense to make a movie based on yourself. And now this will be his final film. Yeah. 
So there's a, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess, I don't know if that's, there's a lot of pressure to him, but there's just like a lot of anticipation. Will, will he, um, you know, be able to complete his filmography with a great movie or will it be a complete, uh, flop? Would it be something that Pauline Kill would find, uh, just, she couldn't wait to sink her teeth into, you know, obliterating its, uh, importance or whatever. I could totally see her being like, you know what? This is dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> I expect more from you, Quentin. I bet if she were still reviewing, she died in 2001. So she was very, fam- I mean, she would have been very familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine, though, he seems like a filmmaker that she would have, um, you know, supported very well. Uh, I know that she did not like Dirty Harry because of its violence. But she also liked Bonnie and Clyde. Um, so I, I imagine that she would have uh, appreciated his, his artistry, uh, Quentin Tarantino's artistry, um, with some of his titles. You know, that's a really good question. Because, like, she praised Bonnie and Clyde because I guess there's this feminist angle because it's this, it's Bonnie and Clyde. You know, it's not yeah. just Dirty Harry. Clint Eastwood being a, a grizzled cop yeah, with his Python 45. Like there's this female angle to it. And with Tarantino, with Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, I think she might've liked Pulp Fiction better than Reservoir Dogs simply because of Uma Thurman's character. Yeah. But who knows? I could see that. I, I think maybe it will be a love hate relationship. Um, it's like Pauline will be like, you know what? I love his movies, but I, you know, do we need that gratuitous violence in it? Cause like Quentin, you know, these two controversial characters, uh, Pauline Kale, Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino got himself in a lot of hot water because of his gratuitous violence depicted on film. Mm. And like, she's very controversial because of her words and her, uh, just coming after everything, just hot reviews. So I think she would have, uh, I think she would have loved Jackie Brown. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe not Kill Bill. I know there's a, a YouTube clip out there of, of Quentin being interviewed by a female critic, and I forget that woman's name, but she always wears these really funky hats. And he and she was um, like criticizing him for the violence of Kill Bill, and he's like, it's a fucking movie. It's, it's entertainment, you know. I remember this. Lighten up or something. And then she just cut off the interview completely. Oh my gosh. Um, she's, and I remember like her follow up after she cut him off. She was like, the film has no soul. It's like, really? Kill Bill doesn't have a soul? It's all it has a soul. All it, it is a soul. Every film of Tarantino's has a soul. I think, I think the question of how, of how Pauline would consider Tarantino's work is entirely irrelevant because she just wasn't alive. I, there's, there seems to be several figures who kind of just for now seem to exist in the popular consciousness in terms of how we think they would respond to things if they were still alive. And typically it only ends up being just a projection of biases and prejudices already inherent that that person has. Mm. Um, You know, we think of someone like George Carlin, you know, who is someone who both the left and the right claim for completely different reasons. And they said, well, if Carlin was alive, he'd say this and that. And it's all, it's all just completely irrelevant. So I don't really particularly enjoy having conversations where it's, it's a speculation of that. I think there has to be an acknowledgement that 
in those conversations, it's a, it's a projection of a particular bias. Mm-hmm. Um, we can take a look at how other women who are film critics now can respond to those works. And Kyle just brought that particular example because that was a very uh, famous viral moment. But in terms of we're, if, if we're talking about just Pauline Kale, I think it's an entirely relevant conversation. Yeah, we're just speculating at this point. But she was alive when, you know, she died in 2001. So she was able to see uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. She was retired at that point. But, you know, so I think she she was at least familiar with his work. Yeah. I think Tarantino was interviewed about uh, Kale. And he said that while she never reviewed any of his films, he had heard, I think it was on uh, um, Club Random, maybe with Bill Maher. And he had mentioned that he, somebody had asked her about one of his films and she seemed to have a positive praise about it. So, but we'll never know. We'll never know what could have been. You know, I think if Tarantino, I'm I'm just glad he never met her. I'm just glad Pauline Kale never reviewed his films because it's like it's like meeting your hero moment. So I'm like, oh, yeah. Pauline Kale, she's the whole reason why I became a director, and and she's like, your movies suck. Oh no, that could Dagger have set him. Yeah, and that's another thing about film critics is you know a lot earlier on they they did not have as much of a of a power and and filmmaking as far as yes. you know if this film gets a good review, it's going to cause more people to go see it. If it gets yes. a bad review, it's going to cause people to not go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, Pauline was certainly, I think, pivotal in that. Some of her uh, reviews, uh, you know, like definitely got people to see Robert Altman's films. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, you know, t- today's uh, critics or, you know, uh, other critics aside from her, um, you know, Ebert and Roper, that, that thumbs up. Like I said, if I didn't see that on a movie poster or a movie advertisement in a newspaper, I probably didn't go see that film. Um, so film criticism has certainly, I think, affected the way that moviegoers um, choose which films they see. Um, but then also it affects uh, like especially younger filmmakers who are just trying to get their name out there. Um, if they get a bad review, I mean, it could set them back years before they even attempt to make another film. Right. We still have that today with uh, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, like or Letterboxd. Like, if your film doesn't meet at least, I, like I know so many people that I recommend a movie, like, oh, we should go see this. Like, this is really good, or rent it, or whatever. And they would go on IMDb, and they would say, like, oh, this is six point something. You know, my threshold is seven point oh, and it's like. Who cares what uh, the form your own opinion? I've seen yeah. so many movies where it's like bad reviews and I'm like, well, I like th- these aspects of it or a really highly reviewed movie. That's like a high rating. And I'm like, oh, I didn't like it. It didn't resonate with me. Form your own opinion, people. Well, this is interesting. This is an interesting topic to bring up in terms of like IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and other places where you can provide your own reviews. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a type of de- uh, democratization that's happening across different uh fields of criticism across music across film where it's having real significant impacts in the industry and for critics like people who actually have whole jobs as opposed as opposed to hobbyists Mm. but within that there's also kind of an an, an inherent um i don't know how i could best describe this um 
there's a process in which through that democratization of these criticisms, the effects of it are very vast and immeasurable. You talked about how possibly a negative critical review can impact a filmmaker's ability to want to make his next film or whatever. Right. But there's a really great article that Rolling Stone did a couple of years ago on the first Suicide Squad movie where that was trashed by various critics and mm -hmm. uh, across different publications. But there was a very concerted campaign effort by online trolls and social media to reverse that in a way where more of that content could be created. And now we see several years later, I think Suicide Squad was maybe like 2015 or 2016, we see you know more content like this. And so by mm -hmm. taking the power away from these critics or these establishment figures within these publications, there's a weird kind of adverse nefarious effect where through that democratization of criticism itself, mm -hmm. it has a direct impact on the, on the type of content that we're able to see as consumers. Mm. That the reason why that we're seeing more and more of these kind of particular homogenous films mm -hmm is because of a very highly motivated, highly vocalized online contingency mm -hmm. that's taking advantage of various industry changes that have occurred in criticism. We're seeing um, uh, various uh, uh, platforms. Um, I'm sorry, but just like that. We're, um, we're seeing various outlets kind of have to uh, cut their budgets to take those away. I mean, there, there are, there are critics who are losing their jobs. There are critics, um, not in, who are losing their jobs got only just because of funding, but you have other things such as like, well, you know, we care about what the people who the audiences are. And also we have this rising thing of AI. There's a lot of different complicated factors that are coming to play with when, how we consider criticism now. It's very interesting looking at the evolution of film critique, because like back in the day, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, even early two thousands, there wasn't this element of tech involved. It's very interesting once, tech companies once analytics were applied to this user testing and all that stuff because that's how i see rotten tomatoes because like we have like you said um these aggregate platforms imdb rotten tomatoes rotten tomatoes is very interesting because like there's two aggregate scores with it we have the aggregate the the culmination of all establishments uh this uh, curated list of reviewers that's the actual tomato. And then we have the popcorn bucket, which is the audience reviews. Everyday people just rating this movie. And you see these two different scores. And it's interesting that now, because of that technology that exists, it's a, it's affecting how actual films are being made. It's like, okay, well, we're seeing that there is a demand for this type of story, for this type of film, based on not only the revenue, but also the how the film is receptive to the general audience, like it's almost like, like you said, like it's uh, these people are going, the film critiques, uh, film critics are going by the wayside because it's like, yeah, we have these establishment people that know what they're talking about, the pe like people that can look at a piece of artwork and be like, okay, it's very interesting. Look at the composition and uh, looking at like the storytelling, the metaphors, and like being able to articulate what they're seeing on screen versus the average schmo. You and I <laughs> looking at this and be like, well, that was an entertaining movie. I want to see more of that. So there's a lot of things that's happening in this industry in terms of this democratization I'm talking about where the relationship with the audience is changing, where as opposed to being someone who's coming to see a particular work of art and then 
having whatever feelings I feel from that, there's now kind of this dynamic because of these aggregate scoring methods and Mm -hmm. the deconstruction of a lot of media industries and the consolidation and monopolization that's coming from that. Yeah. What you have is in terms of this changing relationship is now these audiences see the films as content that has to be catered to them. Mm. Um, This is, and you know, this is something that's been lar- that you could largely attribute to a lot of you know blockbuster films or franchise films where you know if I'm paying you X amount of money to come see your product, I better get the kind of response that you that I expect from this. But it's starting to bleed over more into um, non-franchise entertainment as well. Um, right now on social media, that's kind of going viral is Ari Aster's new film Bo is Afraid, and yes. some screenings have, have have talked about how people are having very visceral reactions and there are posts that are circulating and I know social media is not really a reflective of the vast of how the vast majority of people think, but it does influence public discourse because here we are talking about it. And specifically with this film, it's saying, you know, well, this should be, this film should now be example of why studios should not cede full creative development, full creative control to the directors without consideration of their, how their audiences would feel, which is incredibly asinine. And when we think about that particular example, okay, yeah, we might be talking about one film and one loser guy's opinion of it, but it all goes into how this system tends to operate. Mm-hmm. And I, that, that article on Rolling Stone on Suicide Squad was a very enlightening process uh, for me because it it started to plant those seeds and understanding how the relationship is changing. And even when you look at things a lot more broadly in terms like a global level and China's influence on a lot of films and how we interact with them and how we even review them. um, Yeah, you're right. There is a lot of money that's flowing into it, but there's a lot of weird kind of ideological and deconstruction that's happening in that kind of relationship as a viewer itself absolutely yeah and like side note with Bo is afraid i saw a couple social media posts where like people like stood up and said this movie sucks and stormed out and it's like no one better clap nobody clap at this movie and it's like whoa i can't wait to watch this movie i know it's three hours long it is and i heard it's just like a just a, a consistent like everything about it is um Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Just kind of like irritating, but it's like at a certain point, is that the whole point of the film too, you know? So um, I, I may be one of the ones who, who opts out of seeing it. I liked Midsummer. I liked Hereditary. Those two films kind of bummed me out. Um, but that's what I, you know, that's kind of what... Going in, you expected that. Yeah, well, I I didn't... I wanted a reaction of, of some form, like, you know, that's... Of horror. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I just... I When you've seen so many films, it, all of them start to kind of 
blur together at a certain point like oh especially those marvel films yeah yeah well and it's just the the plots or whatever you could you could watch one film and somebody would be like oh it's the greatest film i've ever seen but then you could be like well it's like avatar you know i like those films but also the the plot f- follows you know you could say it's like dances with wolves or mm-hmm. fern gully or whatever mm-hmm. um so but I look for films now that I can have some sort of reaction to. And maybe that's part of Pauline Kael's influence on me um, in seeing films now. Like if I need to feel something in order to to feel moved by that film. So right. Boa is Afraid has apparently moved a lot of people. Maybe not in uh, a, a, a good reaction, but at least they're feeling something, even if it's, yes. um, you know, distaste for it or something. But isn't that a hallmark of art? Because, like, think about it. What does great art do? It evokes a conversation. It evokes feelings within you. Yeah. Now, it doesn't always have to be positive. But, like, Bo is Afraid, I think, without seeing it yet, I think that's a hallmark of of art as opposed to – there's a difference between film and movies. Before we started rolling, we were kind of poking fun at that, like, difference between what a film is and what a movie is. And I think Bo is Afraid is more in that film – category where you have this director that had a creative vision and he executed on it and i you know whether it's good or bad he still had uh, the resources this is like this is the story i want to tell this is how i want to tell it and this is how i want to show it visually and he has that full control so i think there's this dance and i hate it between the film industry and creatives because like ultimately a director wants to have their creative vision shown on celluloid shown on the big screen the way they intend it but also they need funding and they need the film uh, industry to finance their their goals and ultimately they want to turn a profit so it's like it's like oh yeah you want to create your avant-garde uh, uh niche film that caters to a very small audience or we need you to make a transformers movie I make a fuck ton of money. You know, it's like this dance and it's like, I absolutely hate it, but it's kind of like, that's the reality of the situation here. And, uh, film aggregate sites fuel that, um, notion as well, because it's like, there's clearly an audience for this type of movie. We want to make these movies turn a profit until it's not profitable. Then we do something else. There may be an audience in there, and I certainly agree there is, but there's becoming fewer and fewer outlets for those audiences as we consider the changes that have happened to the, uh, to the theater industry. Mm-hmm. Um, people are going to, to see movies less and less. We have the advent of streaming. We have monopolies that are owning various types of media outlets within them and dictating the content. And there's a lot of things that are happening right now with that. And, you know, it's affecting how, you know, if we want to make this delineation between what's a movie and what's what's a film, I, I, I tend not to get into those kind of the, those kind of discussions. But whatever may fall into this under this film umbrella is getting adversely impacted by these larger theatrical um, industry changes. There's one thing I, I cannot remember the legal term for this, and it's driving me crazy. But back in the 20s and 30s. You could be a studio and own your own theater and where and and you could only show exactly what your studio had showed. And that had changed. Um, and it was and it's, it's, it's something clause. I think it's called like a containment clause or what have you. But it, that existed within the film industry for like 70, 80 years until like the Trump administration um, really? completely, completely removed that. 
so so between when that when that was enacted and when Trump removed it, and I and I and I wish I knew this term for your listeners, they can try to Google Paramount it. cannot own theaters, <laughs> but but now but but now they can, and this so um, and so what this potentially has the effect to do is where now you have these now you could potentially have major conglomerates like Disney or mm. Netflix have their own specific theater houses or yep. or, or um, places to go see just their content marvel because, movies star wars movies you go to like amc but if you want to watch like bo's afraid or any other a24 movie you have to go to the music box yeah essentially a independent studios yeah. yeah whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i think that's where the trend was heading towards anyways because like going like our whole conversation with like film production like paramount uh the disney they're putting out films that essentially they need to make a billion dollars. So like, how are you going to make that money? You need like huge movie chains to have your movies and like movie chains, AMC. I don't know if Lowe's is still a thing. Cinemark. They want to turn a profit too. how they do that by showing movies that people want to pay money to see. So it's like this huge dance of like the dollar bill, essentially. And it's like kind of makes sense. That's, no, it's we, heading towards that anyways. Well, when you're, when you're talking about chains, chains, those chains have specific regulations attached to them where they, ha- where they could not show movies over a certain percentage by a particular production company or distributor. Mm-hmm. It, it's an anti-monopolization um, mm-hmm. clause. That's, that's what goes into this. And that's why when, when the Trump administration removed that, it now paves the way for monopolies to increasingly coalesce in the film industry. I don't think it necessarily was something that was leading to that and you you had regulations that were safeguarding against that but now with a lot of the decentralization of media outlets that there's fewer that there's fewer of them it, it's going to only exacerbate the problem i see nothing but but negative coming from it yeah because when like when you incorporate streaming as well because like you know going through the pandemic and like theaters were closed for a long time and then when they finally reopened, they were struggling to get people back into the seats. Cause like, like uh, Kyle, like when we saw Dune, Dennis Villeneuve's Dune, mm-hmm. I went to the music box. I went to the premiere. It was a good time. They were yelling at me the whole time. They're like, do not open your phone. You will be kicked out of the theater. If I see light coming from you, you'll be kicked out. And then you saw it at home. You saw it on HBO Max. Uh, yes. And but I, I eventually went to see it again in the theater. But I and think the majority of people, if the like for me too, like if the option is, hey, you could watch this at home in the comfort of your own home and your own sound system, you could pause the movie and go to the bathroom and you don't miss anything. Or you can go to the theater, theater experience, audience. People, unless it's like a huge blockbuster movie, Avengers 8, Star Wars Episode 10. People aren't going to go to the theater for that theater experience for Midsummer, for Bo is Afraid, for The Black Coat's Daughter. Like People aren't going to go to those big movie theaters for a smaller film. They're going to go, the, the normal American is going to go to the theater for those big, huge blockbuster movies. We're going to see Barbie. We're going to see Oppenheimer in theaters. We're not going to see that at home. So... Some Maybe streaming will. is the true enemy. Could be. I think there's a lot of villains in this story of where cinema is headed. 
it's deregulation and monopolization. Um, so, but to tie it back into the overall, what we're here to talk about in terms yes. of film, critiques. Uh, film, film criticism, <laughs> yes. it does have an adverse effect on that because with these deregulations and these monopolizations and these larger and larger and fewer and fewer companies having control over the, the production distribution, the whole, the whole end to end pipeline of this, it does have an adverse effect on how you critique that as well and how you mm -hmm. reflect that in your writing. Because when you are a company that owns the theater chain, the production company, and where that gets reviewed, that's you're not going to see a lot of opportunities for yep. really deep critique. And I, I write mostly about music. I, I engage a lot with the, with, with the music journalism community. And one thing I've seen in that community is this heavy resistance towards what's been called as poptimism which is like optimistic pop culture writing in which mm. you can only write about things if it's positive or serves this particular interest, which then becomes essentially like a kind of commercial element. Yeah. So if you're writing this in Pitchfork or if you're writing this in Rolling Stone, your review ultimately ends up being an advertisement for a product that could be also owned by the same family company. A shill. I, I don't want to particularly use that word, but there is a lot of concern that I've seen in the music journalism community about the re the reduction of the role and the place of the of the critic. I, I'm not as particularly engaged in the film journalism community to have seen that as well. But if if I'm sure they're uh, I'm sure they're experiencing experiencing the same kind of pressures as well, because the same forces that are monopolizing and deconstructing music media outlets are also doing the same thing and for other mediums as well. I want to pick your brain on that because I think it can be applied to film journalism as well, because I do see it especially on social media, which I'll unpack in a little bit. But since you write about music, albums, artists work, here's a key question. I don't know if you can't answer it, just give me a wink, give me a nod. Are there paid forces in this like hey you know geffen paid us like hundred thousand dollars to review so-and-so's album make sure it's a positive one so you're talking about payola i mean payola is a scandal that was that occurred in radio in the 1950s in terms of like you know we're going to slip a hundred dollar bill into this vinyl jacket you spend that that happens i'm sure you know it's something that's not supposed to happen but um you do have less and less staff writers that are writing and these and people who do end up writing for particular outlets if they're not a particular staff writer mm -hmm. it's a content mill you're just generating content that can yes. then just be clicked upon exactly okay exactly so i'm not gonna ask about clickbaity stuff because we all know that generates money and clicks and ad revenue um but i think that whole sentiment applies to the film industry because especially on social media where this evolution of film critique is heading towards because like we have these establishment people and then we have these rising stars, Pauline Kael, Roger Ebert, that made it more accessible for more people and that became the industry standard. Now the industry standard seems to be heading towards influencers on social media because that's where all the eyeballs are now. So you have these, like, for example, YouTubers that it's essentially a promotion for whatever movie they're talking about. This happens with like Disney films or like Marvel and Star Wars are like, I saw, you know, I went to the premiere. Like they, 
they sweeten the pot for these influencers like, oh, come to the premiere. You'll see the movie before everyone else. And it's kind of implied that you need to give a positive review of the film. So I totally think that's happening in the film industry. And I think also the opposite is also happening because I've seen this and I just don't understand this phenomenon. I don't know if it's laziness. I don't know if it's a grand conspiracy, but like I've seen a lot of journalists, film journalists talk about certain movies and they almost use the same phrasing when it comes to negative reviews. And it all happens all at the same time. I don't know if everyone's like copying each other's notes uh, when it comes to putting out, as you said, content. But like, for example, when I saw the movie Blonde, uh, the one that was just nominated for Best Picture, like I watched it. I liked it. I thought it was good. It was an interesting movie. It made me feel things. And I look online, bad press all over review bombing in a way. And it's like, and they're all using the same phrases to describe how bad it is. And I'm like, is there like a conceited effort going on? Are people getting the same talking points? I mean, potentially, I mean, they could be owned by the same parent company or, you know, let's, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of hackneyed writers who, lazy, um, <clears throat> who just are, who have the roles and they, and they fight for it because they know they can lose it at any time. As far as how criticism has evolved, what I've personally seen in red is that there seems to be a transition away from analysis to personal narrative mm. that, that drives the heart of your, your, your critique or your criticism. And I think that a lot of that is being driven by uh, various like identity politics, you know, or, and I don't mean that in a negative, I mean that, you know, we're talking about a medium where it's been predominantly male oriented, predominantly uh, heteronormative, and there are right. now white, especially, and there are now a lot of independent, smaller organizations that, and outlets that are providing more diverse and inclusive voices in that. And those are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. We have to elevate those. Um, and what I've noticed that with a lot of, what have a lot of this new kind of rounds of criticism is it really just draws on that kind of personal narrative. And maybe that's an important perspective that we have to have. I'd like to see more of that incorporated into the analysis itself, as opposed to, you know, I'm X person responding to this movie and I'm Y person responding to this movie from Y perspective. Okay. I think we're still trying to find that kind of balance out, but personal narrative from the filmmaker's point of view or from the reviewer's point of view, from the reviewer's point of view. Okay. Point of view. When you were I can see that. Yeah. You were just telling me you were reading a collection of, um, of queer writers who wrote about horror. Yes. And it was all about it. I, I assumed that when I was reading the book, it was going to be more about like, queer theory with horror films or something more of like an analysis, but it was more of uh like you said, like a personal narrative of when this person was going through whatever they were dealing with, you know, that they had this one horror film that they could draw on or that they could compare themselves to. Um, so it was more of like a personal narrative uh, essay than it was just like an analysis of, of horror films that I assumed would were coming from like a, a queer point of view and i think that's an important distinction because what no because we do completely need those kind of voices but i'd like to see more of those voices kind of speak to that analysis yeah you know, otherwise it's 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 not it's it's informative in a way but 
it's it's it seems like there's something missing that contributes to the art itself actual criticism like like you said there's no analysis now it's more about i don't this is how my, i feel this is i don't Very see shallow. myself yeah i don't i don't see myself in this film or i i you know a lot of times I've seen reviews where it's like a checklist of of making sure that everybody in the free world is is represented in some shape or form and and in a positive light and not a negative light um god forbid but there's no there's no analysis of the actual story of the film itself or you know the the or the technical form. prowess yeah, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. the aesthetic of it um it, it, yeah it's it's more from and this may be Pauline Kael's fault too, because a lot of times she wrote herself in some of her reviews too. Um, but okay. o- overall though, there is that, you know, yes, you can have a, a feeling towards a film. And I think all films should move you in some way because it's art, mm-hmm. but what else about it, you know, is great. Just, you know, is it two thumbs up? Is it four stars? Is it two stars? Is it two thumbs down? You know, get out of this mindset of of y- yourself and think of what other audiences can get out of this movie. I think it's beyond because like we mentioned identity politics and like we have that laziness when it comes to like, OK, I'm looking for X, Y and Z. It's be represented or else it's not good. And it's like that's not where the laurels should be. It should be um, like. I have an authoritative voice when it comes to like film critique because like it's more than just the film. It's also the context of the film, when the film was made, and also like who's making it and how are they expressing themselves through this medium. And it's like that's all lost on today's like the big voices of today because like they're just going on. It's more than just how you feel. It's also paired with I'm actually critiquing what I'm looking at. I'm giving an informative analysis of what I just watched. And people are just like, it's good. You know, I think it's great. Two thumbs up. And it's like, well, it's, it's more than just that when you're critiquing a work of art. I think laziness might be too strong of a word. And if I, and if I had to use that in a prior response, I apologize. I think, I think it's more of a tokenization that's happening. Okay. Yeah. I, I think there's a to- I think with a lot of the conglomerization and monopolization that's happening with with media outlets, there is a tokenization element that's there. No, I do, I totally think you're right. There is a tokenization because they're looking for the token person. They're looking for the token archetype. They're looking for the token visual representation of whatever minority group, uh, marginalized society, like whatever. They're just looking for it. And that's important to have. It's important to have the visual representation of minorities or people that we don't really see in, in film. And like, there is like this annoying aspect of it. Like, oh, they're, they're checking boxes. But like, if I finish, like it, it's important to see that because like we've had for the longest time, we haven't had that representation. And now people see themselves in characters and they don't have to look like them, but it helps to be like, oh, there's a there's a Mexican guy. I want Mexican. to be I want to be very clear about my about the nuance of the of what I'm saying here. Uh-huh. Uh, because I think all that, yes, I, I echo that I think it's all incredibly important. The question I ask is 
Are you just clicking boxes or are you actually telling an interesting story while having these minority groups also represented? Because like, I also hate right. identity so politics. Are, so are, are, are these voices just echoing a, a type of, with a lot of these media outlets, especially heavily corporatized ones, they have their own standards of practices and how exactly things get covered. I mean, we talked about how the same company through its various subsidiaries could own various points of the film production, the distribution to criticism pipeline mm-hmm. are, are what, what's at the heart of what they're saying? Is it just echoing the talking points of their corporate owners or is it actually taking their, your, their unique perspectives and applying them to what they're writing? It's very complex. It's a very complex situation that I think we put ourselves into. I don't think we put ourselves into. It. I think what I think there are that that you have various overlapping and interconnected business interests that are happening. Mm-hmm. It's all being driven by money, and you've got powerful elites who are sitting at the top of these you know boardrooms trying to dictate taste and culture standards for yes. the rest of the country. Yes. And these people who run these companies, they don't care or know what the rest of the, what the rest of the country thinks, and they will provide what they think that needs to be provided. And so going back to my point earlier about the suicide squad film and the, the concerted troll effort there, you then have these elites saying, well, this is what now they want to see. It needs to be funny. Now let's or, rework the whole damn movie. That's supposed to be dark into a comedy because of just, or because of Avengers. So it's 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 these elites making these corporate decisions, projecting their biases on what they think that these audiences may want to see. They need some jokes. Zack Snyder, you're fired. Joss Whedon, well, actually they didn't fire uh, Zack Snyder, but they recut his damn movie into a comedy. I haven't seen the original Justice League. I saw this, the Snyder cut and I thought it was good. And I did the A and B of same scenes and i'm like oh my god this is so bad jokes said off screen as adr they increase the saturation it's like oh my god this is they thought this was a good idea i avoided it both versions the snyder cuts long but it's actually pretty interesting but if you're not into superheroes don't watch it (laughs) yeah i mean i also think it's a tribute to um the whole like collation of like Production house, directing, critique of said work. It's also convenience for the consumer, for the user. Like, I'm going because I want to watch something. I need content to watch, whether it's in my home or in the theater and a night out. It makes it a lot more convenient to have that pipeline that says, this is going to be good and you're going to like it. It's very convenient for the for the consumer. That's why critics should still exist to know what is good and bad taste but to have that distinction. Gonna, are people going to listen to them though? I think so. Let's get off the fence. I think, I think um, there's always a need for, for a voice that, that determines what is good and what is bad. And uh, because ultimately that's what will save a film or, you know, any sort of art form, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the reason why we look at, uh, that's the reason why we have the Oscars. You know, that's the reason why we have criterion collection. Uh, 
there are these voices that, you know, it all starts from a critic. And then we take that point of view and, and mm -hmm. then we, we take that in consideration with the movie and then we can watch it for ourselves and we can be like, huh, I agreed with what that critic says. It is a great film or, ugh, this is a terrible film. I should have listened to that critic. Uh, after I read that review or the voice of reason or, um, huh, I really like this film. I don't know why the critics said it was bad, but either way, it's that, it's that, um, persuasion or that influence from the critic that gets us discussing movies to begin with. It opens up a conversation at any social gathering of, Oh, did you see such and such? I really liked it. How did you like it? I hated it. And then you're constantly going back on, you know, why you liked it or why you hated it. Um, so I, I know that there may be this change, but I, th I think criticism will exist. Uh, you know, this may just be a fad that um, film distributors or, or filmmakers are, are going through right now, but I, the critic will always be needed. All right. So let me ask you this, Brad. Are film critics needed? So we have Kyle's <laughs> response that we have. You know my answer. Do you think we still need them in today's age, like how the industry evolved into the state of affairs that we're in right now? Are critics still needed? Yes, I think critics are absolutely still needed. But I think the perspective that they need to have as critics is going beyond a personal narrative to then discuss how this how this film exists within the construct of what is happening in the industry altogether. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more complicated factors. I mean, there's, there's with these various um, decentralization of, of media outlets, there are voices that are coming to the top of that for various reasons that are, are needed, mm -hmm. but there's a homogenization that's happening as well. I mean, you can have, you can have all these different voices all you want, but if they're all saying the same thing, that's a problem. And I think a lot of film cr criticism needs to now incorporate a lot of the business element especially how it concerns what the role that this film has within that larger ecosystem. Also time is the ultimate critic of a film. Will it be like remembered? longevity? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some films don't last as long because I don't know, point of views change, you know, some critics, rethink some earlier of their reviews of some of the earlier films that they watched and then they rewatch it and they have a completely different opinion about it. But, um, and that's due to time. It's like you wine. change. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you change your attitude or you might change your opinion, but that's whatever it is, um, that determines, uh, a film's longevity in, yes. in discussion. It yeah. is just like wine, but wine can also be corked. Yes. You ever open up a bottle of wine and find it that just tastes really bad? Yep. Yeah. I opened up a 2015 Merlot and I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And I was like, eh, was this in the sun? <laughs> didn't, didn't age very well. Um, but yeah, some films age like milk. It's like, it's good right when it comes out, but then... Give it a little bit of time. It's like, oh, this uh, this isn't very good. Yeah. It's actually rotten. It's expired. <laughs> yeah, it expired. It's clotted. Well, I think that, that, that reflects artwork as well because like the vast minority are the ones that are remembered. 
Mm. Like when Leonardo da Vinci was creating his sculptures and his paintings, there were other artists too. We're not talking about them. We're talking about him. And then they get rediscovered. Yes. Long after they're dead. But then they come back and, and now all of a sudden they have uh, a seat at the table of, of conversation. A hidden um, gem. You know, that's why we've got like cult following uh, films that are out there that maybe weren't very successful at first, but found an audience. That's right. It's like that scene in Back to the Future. It's like, you're not ready for this, but your kids are going to love it. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So... I, I agree with both of you. I think film critics are totally still needed, but I lean more on you, Brad, like hundred percent needed, but like they need to change their tune to keep up with the times. And it's very like for multiple reasons. I totally think it needs to happen. Like both in, I guess the transmission of their critiques because people aren't reading newspapers anymore it needs to be on social media but then how do you do that how do you have like this nuanced critique of this work of art a film within social media where people are looking at a post for three seconds or less so it's like maybe you need that pauline kale moments of like this film is shit let me tell you why yeah it, it we're just this may just be a transition period right now and uh you know whatever works will it's like evol you know evolution or something whatever works will find its way out and whatever doesn't will will fall to the wayside maybe people that make video essays are the true pioneers could be you know because they are critiquing it and giving a nuanced approach to it in a visual format on social media so maybe nobody wants to read a a 25 thousand word review uh and and not you know they want to see okay what grade do you give it what what's the rotten tomato score what's the bite-sized review I yeah consume how many thumbs how many stars three thumbs up yeah um because that's kind of i mean that's has already kind of happened in and during our childhood i mean like and so now we're it's not even symbols anymore it's uh it's something visual it's video essays and mm -hmm. hot takes uh on youtube or whatever um yes so we'll see brad do you like this trend towards more visual formats because like imagine your reviews but transposed to visual instead of literary you know is that a good is that step in the right direction or is that step backwards I write books that interview authors. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> no, okay. I don't think it's. I I know I I I don't want to sound like a complete luddite on all that, but I I think it just there's room for all of it. I I know people are reading less and engaging with books and and magazines less, and they and they are going towards that more kind of like curated TikTok element. For me, the issue is not the medium. It, it it's it's a lot of the other issues around it, a lot of the other business interests around it, a lot of the other algorithms around it, the, a lot of the deconstruction of of the end of, of regulations and industries. Yeah. What I am more concerned with is is I'm less concerned of people. You know, if, if people are getting their critiques from TikTok over books or magazine articles, 
that's I'm less concerned about that and more concerned with what exactly they're being exposed to through that algorithm and through that business interest. Like the content that they're seeing is being financed by somebody with a particular outlook and agenda on why they're going to be feeding content that this person this person is getting on their feed. Right. That's that's where I particularly see the issue. Oh well, hopefully we can reconvene in a few years and see if it remedied itself or if it got worse. I don't want to be a pessimist. I just hope that it improves. You know, because we're talking about it. Sure. It's conversation and it's like these external forces that are influencing the conversation that we have about film, that the conversation that film evokes. It's like I don't want these external forces negatively influencing the conversation or even manipulating the conversation based on monetary gain. You know, that's well, there's also there is also in terms of, you know, the the public has a lot of work to do themselves. I mean, we can put the blame, the rightfully so, the majority of the blame on these corporations that do this, but the public has to be willing to engage and participate and question themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was thinking just now about, and this is purely just um, circumstantial, um, that I, you know, when when the first Joker for, for the first, when the first trailer for Joker premiered, I had some, someone on my newsfeed was, had just shared this article about how you shouldn't see this movie because it's going to motivate incels. And I'm like, how can you honestly judge this based on a trailer? You've already built, you've already got a full on built in narrative mm-hmm. response to this. And I, and I'm starting to see that kind of creep in more and more this kind of let's all, let's apply a sparks notes response to something that they haven't even experienced themselves yet. I, I, I tend to see this creeping a little bit more and more. So their, their essential reactions, their bite-sized reviews are a vehicle for their political agenda, essentially, because like with Joker, cause I saw it opening day. I went with Simone. We had to go through body scanners like the metal detectors i'm like holy shit because like that hysteria caused by these quote film critics of like this is going to embolden incels it's going to cause shootings to happen just like in the aurora movie theater shooting the dude dressed up as joker shot up the batman movie it's gonna happen again didn't happen nothing happened it's just a movie about arthur fleck this marginalized dude uh villain anti-hero i guess i don't know but like it has nothing to do with incels nothing it, to do with incels it all has the same energy as when you know parents you know blame like rock like gta or yeah grand theft auto or or just like marilyn manson or the doom video game there's there's always like an artistic kind of scapegoat that's happening that feeds into a larger bias narrative yeah. and i think i think the general public has to push it back against that. Maybe that's fueled by the algorithms that are curating the content that they specifically see. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I mean, we're, we're talking about much larger systems here that are beyond my control, yeah. but it requires something more than just passive engagement. Absolutely agree. Maybe Quentin Tarantino's the movie critic will, will change everybody's, outlook Hopefully. and uh and we'll go back into a completely different direction yeah yeah you're you're just 
reading my mind, Kyle, as I was transitioning <laughs> to the film critic because it's the movie critic, right? I know in the notes, I film critic, movie, movie, movie critic. critic. Maybe he'll change the title. It'll just be the critic, the critic, which yeah. we never discussed. The critic from the nineties, uh, Jay Sherman with John Lovitz. Oh, I love that show. It stinks. <laughs> There's your Pauline Kale. That's exactly. <laughs> you know, that probably was my most influential critic growing up. It was, it was Jay Sherman. There we go. Seeing reruns late oh night on Comedy God. Central. Absolutely. <laughs> Roger Ebert was in that too as a, as a little cameo. And, and yeah. Gene. And Gene. Both of them were. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. That's a throwback. Mm. So let's go to the film critic. Um, do we think that's going to stick the landing for Tarantino? I know we have, we know nothing about it. We just know it's going to be about a credit. I think it's very, uh, poetic that his final film allegedly is going to be about a person that critiques the whole industry. So it's kind of like this mm. nice little bow on his filmography. And my final film is going to be about a film critic. Do we think it's going to stick the landing before we even know anything about it? You know, he's a very meticulous filmmaker. Um, he knows a lot about film. I think he's even said like after a certain time, film directors get so old that, you know, their, their best three films are overshadowed by the last four worst that they made. So mm-hmm. I, I think he will, he, he, he knows what he's doing and, uh, I think he'll, he'll go out on, on a, a high note. Nice. What about you, Brad? Considering that he did release a book of uh, criticism and analysis and must speculation, I think he comes from a more informed place as opposed to just writing. It'd be one thing to say, oh, I grew up reading these and I'm making a film about this, but to actually participate in the process as well, I think will give him a much more informed outlook that would have had a different um, creative effect. Mm -hmm. He has that nuance. He has that background. He knows how to critique film. That's going to be expressed in him creatively creating this character whether or not it's based on pauline kale um so one thing's for sure i will be reviewing it oh yeah you're gonna say it's shit then the critic will review the movie critic (laughs) and will be full meta full meta all right final question do we think this film I kind of alluded to it earlier is it going to be a love letter to cinema or is it going to be holding up a mirror a black mirror to the industry itself Uh maybe a little bit of both but I'd say more like a love letter I think I, every one of his films so far has been an homage or a love letter to some form of cinema um you know once upon a time in hollywood was more of an uh, a love letter to old hollywood from the sixties. Yeah. So this will probably, you know, considering that it's specifically set in the late seventies, it'll probably be uh, a love letter to that era of filmmaking as well. I could see that. Whether or not there's a holding up a mirror aspect, maybe a little bit, um, you know, cause he certainly has his opinions on, on the film industry, but yes, he does. Uh, that I, I'm sure mostly it'll be a love letter. He thinks the movies today are dog shit. Yeah. And good for you for having that opinion, Quentin. <laughs> Brad, do you think it's going to be a love letter to the industry or do you think it's going to be a critique on the industry itself, holding up that mirror? I only reserve my cinema speculation for movies I've seen. Okay. I respect that. I think there's a little joke in there too. Oh. Cinema speculation. Speculate. That was also Tarantino's book. Oh. 
That he's on a, yeah, it just, has it been released yet? Oh yes. It came okay. out in November. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think it's going to be a love letter ultimately to that time period, just like with, uh, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, which where, where you had like Bruce Lee and all these, uh, real people, um, you know, Charles Manson too. Um, I think it's going to be an homage to that time period for sure. I think it's probably going to do some revisionist history as well. Like whatever happened during that time. Um, yeah, I totally think it's, I, you know, I see once upon a time in Hollywood less as, um, a love letter or an homage and more as just acknowledgement of a changing zeitgeist. Cause you have, you have the you have the Hollywood system uh-huh. changing in the sixties. You have the arrival of, um, not really a run. I mean, Charles Manson just really exposed something that was already inherently toxic and hippie culture there to begin with. But by having this old TV cowboy guy kind of have this existential crisis about how exactly he moves forward in this industry mm-hmm. amidst the time when the industry was changing itself and even the larger social culture in mm-hmm. terms of like the counterculture, it's it's more of a reflection of changing zeitgeist and how we fit into that. By the way, he films it. I mean, those shots of like the restaurants turning their lights on and everything and and Brad Pitt, you know, getting back to his trailer with the the wide drive through theater screen. There's a love and appreciation for that too. I just it can rem- be both. I just remember only Brad Pitt shirtless in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is this nostalgic element of a love letter of that time period. Mm. But Brad, you're totally right. It is this because you have that character of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, where it's like he's no longer fitting into the society that he lives in. He, like he's a his star has fallen, and we see that redemption of his star rising once again, both in the industry and also him saving Sharon Tate from the Manson cult. So, mm. a little bit of both. A little that, bit of column that, A, a little bit of column B. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> right. And I think the right, film right. critic is probably going to be a bit of that. Yeah. I think there's going to be some poignance to it, but also uh, some nice little rose colored glasses of the time period. Even though this may, this will be his final film. We also have his TV series to look forward to. I think I know what it is. I think I know what it is because he did an interview on two bears, one cave, Tom Segura. And one little line was uttered because he told the comedian Tom Segura what it was off air. And Tom said, it's going to be a fresh new look and an existing franchise. And we know that uh, Quentin Tarantino is a big Star Trek fan. And apparently this TV series is going to be, I think on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus holds the rights to Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to finally get his... Star Trek miniseries. That's just my, that's my hot take. I think that's where he's going to, what he's going to do. Okay. I don't know anything about it. I don't, I, I, I don't know that he was making a TV series. Yeah. It was kind of like a flash in the pan. I'm making a TV series, everybody. Oh my God. That was like the, the hot news for like a month. And then he said like, Oh, when I'm, I'm, I'm going to make my film when I'm ready. I'm not ready right now. And then like a couple months later, I'm making my final film. And it's like, oh, yeah. oh, now you're ready. I, th- I think that's going to be uh, the more appropriate close than the final film being a Star Trek feature. <laughs> yes. 
He can have his cake and eat it too. All right, guys. We're at the end of the show. We have some hot takes on what Quentin Tarantino's film is going to be, given the context of what film critique uh, has been, the historical nature, where it's heading. Like we, We talked a lot and I'm glad that we all gathered here today. Uh, it's very appropriate. We have journalists both in the music industry and the film industry here today. Makes sense. Guys, thank you so much for lending your insights on Pauline Kale, Roger Ebert, uh, film criticism in general. Cannot thank you enough. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Kyle, you're still at uh, Trip Radio? That's correct. So people can find your reviews there. And Brad, where can people find your interviews with literary figures? I speak to authors for the New Books Network. It is an academic consortium of authors who interview other authors. You can find that at newbooksnetwork.com. Very nice. And I hear you have a podcast. Well, that is the podcast. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it is an academic podcast consortium. It is the world's largest podcast network dedicated to books. And authors from different academic areas, from British studies to popular culture to, uh, you know, uh, military history. We even have a genocide history channel, you know, so if you are a particular academic who wants to go on that, that's fine. I interview journalists and professors for the music book channel. Nice. Very nice. And I'm also an author myself. Very nice. I'll be sure to link your podcast in the show notes. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. So until next time, goodbye, everybody. That's it for this time on The Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Keep the conversation going by adding us on Instagram and letterboxed at Syndicate. Or join the Discord server where you can catch Armand along other podcasters and listeners at syndicate.com slash discord. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye.